Hello, I'm Jared Manning, a pastor at Grace Bible Church in Clute, Texas, and I want to welcome you to the audio version of our Systematic Theology course. This is part of our Grace Seminars held one Saturday each month from 8 a.m. to noon. We'd love for you to join us if you're able. Uh, you can find dates and register at connect.gbctx.org under events or on our Facebook page under events. There's no cost to join and breakfast and class materials are provided. And we recognize that not everyone's schedule allows you to attend. So we want to make these available to you via podcast. I hope you enjoy this course on systematic theology. Well, thank you for joining us as we continue our study in systematic theology. And today we're going to be looking at the existence and attributes of God um, in the midst of life's challenges and pain and frustration. Where do you go for comfort? Christians are those who can confidently and happily turn to God, not just because he exists, but because of what he is like. A.W. Tozer said, what a person thinks of when he thinks of God is the most important thing about him. In our last session on the doctrine of the word, we noted that what marks God out from among all the other false gods is that he speaks. He's graciously revealed himself through the written word, which is our Bible and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And this revelation is true, it's trustworthy, it's sufficient, and it's necessary. It does not and cannot lead us astray. It's our final authority, the final arbiter in all matters of faith and practice, not the church or our reason or subjective impressions or experiences. It's the word of God alone that stands as our final authority. As we begin this third session, there are two questions that lie at the foundation, not only of religious knowledge, but also of every possible form of knowledge. And those questions are this, is there a God and related to this? How can we know? And what is God like? What, what are his attributes? These are the questions that we'll begin to answer during our time together today. We begin by thinking about the existence of God. In response to our first question, is there a God, we must note at the outset that the Bible doesn't spend time arguing for God's existence. It simply presumes that he does. In Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God. It's a biblical given in the same way the pre-existence of matter is a given for the materialist. The Bible treats God's existence like gravity. We can deny it, and we can ignore it, and we pretend it doesn't exist, but it's to our own peril. Every worldview begins somewhere. As we discussed in the first session, the Christian worldview begins with these two premises. He is there and he is not silent. In other words, God exists and he speaks. But if someone were to ask you how you know God exists, what would you say? If we are Christians, we can say that we believe that God is really there because he has revealed himself to all men generally by creation and providence, propositionally in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, personally in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and savingly through the work of his Spirit. So let me repeat that. If someone were to ask you how you know God exists, here's how you can reply. If we are Christians, we can say that we believe God is really there because he has revealed himself to all men generally by creation and providence, propositionally in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, personally in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and savingly through the work of his spirit. 
Scripture testifies to this. Uh, John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And 1 John 5, 20 reads, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So in the first chapter of Romans, Paul tells us that God has made the fact of his existence plain to all humanity. In Romans 1.19, we see because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them and within them. In verse 20, he says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, not veiled, not hidden, but clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that the result of this revelation, men and people are without excuse. So his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that we are without excuse. Uh, Creation cries out that there is a creator. Who is it that sends the rain and the sun? Who is it that blankets the earth in darkness and then unleashes the morning sun? Who is it that separates the land from the sea? From the order of the seasons to the intricacies of a flower to the innumerable stars at night, we see God's hand as the intelligent creator. If you've ever seen BBC's Planet Earth, it's a visually arresting and stunning way that production powerfully captures the grandeur, majesty, wonderful diversity, and the remarkable complexity of God's creation. Yet the producers never say a thing about God. Why is that? Well, it's because despite this revelation in creation, Paul goes on to say in Romans that man willfully suppresses the truth and exchanges it for a lie. And so fallen man worships the natural world instead of the one that made it. But there's not just creation. We also have been given a conscience because we are made in God's image, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, something of his moral character remains in us. Though our consciences aren't a perfect guide because they've been corrupted by the fall, our concerns for morality, justice, knowledge and truth, they point us back to our creator. While creation and conscience ought to be the reason alone to convince us that God exists, the fact that we suppress the truth in our fallen state has led Christians to formulate theistic proofs or arguments for the existence of God. These proofs are simply attempts to demonstrate that it's rational to believe in God's existence. God is not our imaginary friend and thus relegated to the realm of myth and superstition. I mention these proofs because... They often are included in systematic theology, but for the sake of time, I will leave you with just a mention of them. These proofs don't lead us to the sovereign personal God of Scripture. They can help show how it's not irrational to believe in God, but none of these proofs tell you much of what God is like. None of them get you to the God of Scripture and saving faith in Christ. We'll look at some of those things later on in apologetics course down the road. All knowledge of God rests on revelation. Though we can never know God in the full richness of his being, he is known to all people through his revelation and creation, the theater of his glory. The world is never godless. In the end, there are no atheists. There are only arguments about the nature of God. This distinction between what is known about God to all generally and what is 
only known about him specially is often referred to as the general versus special revelation of God. So let's define the two. Uh, General revelation is that unveiling of God, the knowledge of God's being and will, which is given to all people everywhere and at all times through the ordinary experience of being alive in God's world. Special revelation, on the other hand, is how God has made himself known by particular acts and words, especially in the word of the Lord, the scriptures, and the Lord of the word, Jesus Christ. And so what does general revelation reveal? Psalm 19 and some other texts um, show what general revelation reveals, but I'm just going to pick a couple and read those to you. And I want you to think about what these texts teach about general revelation for everyone who... So I'm going to read from Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I'll be in the Christian Standard Bible. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they knew God's just sentence— that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice. And reading from Acts 17, beginning in verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live 
He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what do these texts reveal to all mankind generally? First, that God is one, as we see in Acts 17, 26 and Romans 1, 20, that God is the creator that God is eternal and independent, that God is invisible and powerful, as we see in Romans 1.20, that God, though distinct from the universe, is active in it. We see that all throughout Acts 17, that God sustains all things, that he is moral, the ultimate source of our values. The Bible says all these things we ought to know naturally, simply by the fact that we're all made in God's image and live in His this world that he's made. Some would argue, such as Thomas Aquinas and many in the Roman Catholic and Enlightenment tradition, that with the aid of reason and general revelation, we can come to know who God is and what he's like. So natural theology is the attempt to attain understanding of God and his relationship with the universe by means of natural reflection without appealing to special revelation. And yet Paul stresses in Romans 1 through 2 that one of the effects of the fall is that we've rejected this knowledge of God and exchanged it for a lie. Thus, the reformers and men like Martin Luther in the bondage of the will stress the noetic or uh, that that word is nuos uh, for mind in Latin. Uh, He stressed the noetic effects of sin or the effects of sin on the mind. Our minds are too warped as a result of the fall to get to God merely through reason applied to general revelation. Though conscience and nature point to God in our fallenness, we need the spectacles of scripture and the regenerating work of the spirit in order to see properly what's there. One clear implication of this is that general revelation renders human beings guilty. We cannot escape God. Outside of us, the created order screams at us like the lead singer of a metal band. Do you not see? Do you not understand? There is a God who created you and you are accountable to him. We can close our eyes and plug our ears, but that won't change reality. And inside our own heads, our consciences won't give us any rest. So because sin blinds and distorts our perceptions of God, if we're to know what God is really like, we have to turn to his revelation of himself in the Bible. But I want to ask a question when you think of describing God from scripture, what are some words that first come to mind? These words make up God's attributes. Um, So when you think of God, you could think of the word love or sovereign or good or just. All of these things make up God's attributes. When theologians speak of the attributes of God, they're referring to those qualities that are essential to the nature of God, who he is and what he's like. Most systematic theologians elect to classify God's attributes by dividing them up into various classes. So 
In one class, you have the incommunicable attributes of God, those attributes that God alone possesses, his omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. And then we see his communicable attributes, those attributes that we share, albeit in a fallen and finite way, uh, with God, love and justice and mercy. So first, we're going to look at the independence or self-existence of God, also referred to as the aseity of God. God's existence and character are determined by himself alone, and they are not dependent on anyone or anything else. Um, that's often referred to as aseity. Um, ase means to have life from oneself. He owns all things. He has no needs outside of himself. God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed some company or needed us to complete him somehow. In the Trinity, God is self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-contained. He says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. In other words, I will be who I will be. He needs nothing. We need hours and hours of sleep in order to keep our eyes open. We need water to keep us alive. We need food for energy, shelter for protection, doctors for our health, teachers to teach us all the things we don't know and then promptly forget. And I could go on and on. We could even talk about pagan gods needing things from people. But the God of the Bible, he needs nothing life, strength, protection, health, knowledge. He has it all completely in himself, which is exactly why we can go to him and depend on him at all times. He is the king. His word rules literally, but he's not the kind of king who's constrained by budget deficits, a divided Congress, NATO, or the weakness of the age. He's entirely free of all such constraints. Because he's dependent on nothing and no one, he is always able to be there for his people. His independence and self-existence ought to be a huge encouragement to us. Secondly, God is immutable. Namely, God in his nature, character, and purposes does not change. We have to change our plans all the time, either because we lack the necessary foresight and knowledge to anticipate all contingencies or because we lack the power and ability to affect what we plan. But not so with God. God has all power and knowledge. Flood, snow, fire, government shutdowns, nothing like these thwart his purposes. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. God never has to resort to a plan B or a plan C. He needs no contingencies, no fallback options, no emergency escape route. Practically, this means that we can always trust him and rely on his word. He will always act in conformity with what he has promised, and so we have confidence in him. We live as if on the surface of a restless ocean, everything shifting and changing about us. We're always trying to catch our balance in this world, but God, he is a rock amidst those fluctuating waters, and so with unshakable confidence, we can stand firmly upon him. Now, some reject this teaching. They'll say God cannot know our future decision in order for those decisions to be fully free. For if he knows them in advance, that means they will necessarily happen, which means that decision can't be truly free. For we only could have done what God already foreknew and nothing else. Like, for example, what we have for lunch. So they'll say God is a great guesser, but since he doesn't finally know 
we can't say he's immutable. Like us, he'll have to change his mind. Now, related to this is the notion of impassibility literally means without emotion. If God cannot be ruled by another and is dependent on no one, is there any way in which God legitimately has feelings or emotions? It's a natural question for how can emotions be appropriate to one who is utterly independent and self-sufficient? Biblically, though, we see that God does have emotions. He's not the unmoved mover of Greek thought. It's just that they're not like ours. We're surprised. We're caught off guard, confused, hurt. Thus we cry. In our anger, we lash out. God too may grieve, but not in the same way. When he suffers, he chooses to. His passions are real, but he's not ruled by them. Anger rules us, but God rules over anger. That's the fundamental difference. So when the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is without parts or passions, it is not denying God's responsiveness to creaturely action. Rather, it is denying, A, that God is made up of various faculties or emotions, and B, that God is taken captive by anything other than his own nature. The constituent biblical testimony is that while God may be opposed and provoked, God cannot be overcome by surprise or distress, anger, compassion, or opposition. Good news for those who deserve God's wrath. There's a lot we could say, but scripture is clear. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Or in 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. God is perfectly immutable and thus perfectly dependable. Thirdly, the Bible also teaches God is infinite. This means that there is no limitation to God's perfections. His infinity is expressed in a number of ways, such as in space and power and in time. First, God is infinite in space. We refer to that as his omnipresence. This means that God transcends spatial limitations, is without size, and is present at every point of space with his whole being. When people refer to God as being a big God, they're referring to his greatness rather than a quantitative measurement. Psalm 139 conveys this clearly when it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will hold me fast. A corollary to this is that God is spirit. He's incorporeal. He is not made of matter. He has no parts or dimensions. Though God is wholly present throughout all things, he is yet distinct from all things. Pantheism asserts that God minus the world equals zero, that they are perfectly identified. The Bible, however, asserts that God minus the world equals God. He is distinct from all that he has created. So for God to move into my house doesn't mean I have to move out. We think of presence in terms of physicality, but that's not so with God. So when we read that the spirit is indwelling or abiding in a Christian, or we read that God is in heaven, it's not referring so much to the location as to relationship. 
the spirit indwells in that he's present with us in a saving way. We can enter into his presence, not that we've spatially become closer to God, but that we access through Christ, but that we have access through Christ to a new relationship with God where we can bring everything before the throne of his grace. So hell is not the absence of God, but the absence of God in a saving way. Hell is the presence of God in the fullness of his wrath. So think about that for a second. Hell is not the absence of God but the absence of God in a saving way. Hell is the presence of God in the fullness of his wrath. So practically speaking, God's omnipresence means we can always be certain of God's undivided attention. We don't need to stand in line or make an appointment or take a religious pilgrimage. We are in his presence always. But it's also a warning to us. We have no place to hide. There's no corner of the universe where God is not. He sees it all. Jean-Paul Sartre calls God the cosmic voyeur because he hates this idea that God is everywhere. It means that we're accountable. Hide and seek is not a game we can play with God in our sins. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. So if you're trying to hide, just come out and confess it. You're not fooling God. So be reconciled to him. But God's not just omnipresent. He's also infinite in power or omnipotent. God is able to do all that he decides to do. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, 26, that with God, all things are possible. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 17 declares, there's nothing too hard for the sovereign Lord. Did you hear that? There's nothing too hard for God. So this naturally leads to the question, does this mean that God can do everything? classic freshman year of college question, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? You're trapped. But that question presents a false dilemma based off of a false assumption that God can do anything. It's better to say God can do everything by saying that God can do everything that he wills to do and is consistent with his character. For example, according to Hebrews, God cannot lie. In 2 Timothy 2.13, we find that God cannot disown himself. God cannot cease to be God or act in a way inconsistent with any of his other attributes. This too is great encouragement. A God who can feel but not help is of little use. It's a comfort in our persecution. The psalmist in Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's a comfort in our prayers. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we seek or imagine, Ephesians 3.20. It gives us confidence in the future. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore, Jude 24 and 25. So if God does not see or if God does not answer our prayers or respond a particular way, we trust his wisdom, which we'll think about in the next sessions. But God is also infinite in time. He is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were born, 
or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Revelation, the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. This doesn't mean God is everywhere in time, but that he transcends the very limitations of time. He has no beginning or end. Some have likened time to a long parade. We're in the parade marching along, experiencing only one section of it. Whereas God stands on top of a mountain and sees it all at once, it's not passing him by, so to speak. Practically, this means God will always be there for us. He won't be that friend who ever moves away or worse yet dies on us. He always was and will be, and thus he always is there for us. We can make all our plans around him, trust him, and know he'll be there for he is eternal. Brothers and sisters, God is not like us. He's majestic and glorious. He's perfectly self-sufficient with perfect plans, perfect power, covering everything all the time. So before you leave, before you stop this podcast, ask yourself this one question. In light of all this, why would you be tempted to place your affections, your security, your well-being in anyone else? I want to close by reading from Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you to the brothers and sisters of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for generously providing the material for this study.